0: And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So, once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm.
2: Thank you very much for listening to TriLove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the TriLon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at TriLove Podcast. You can find the TriLon at TriLon Cinema and at trilon.org. Buy tickets there to movies like the one we're about to talk about. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at
1: Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and we don't use profanity or double negatives here at
0: Trilove, but you can find me on Twitter at Cody_BH. underscore BH. For Plays for Sissies, I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And before we talk about the movie that we're
2: going to talk about, uh, you know her from a lot of places, including the hit runaway podcast, uh, Stoop Kids. That's Stoop Kids with a Z. Yeah. Uh, We actually have the entire Stoop Kids crew on this episode, uh, just as a side. But uh, in our episodes on Valley Girl and Fargo, uh, Emily Sui is with us. Welcome back, Emily.
3: Thank you for having me. Hello.
2: Where can people find you on the Internet, Emily?
3: Yeah, uh, you can mostly find me at Stoop Kids Pod on Instagram and Twitter. That's with Cody and Harry and Jason. You produce it Um, all about Hey Arnold.
2: That is a very professional plug, Emily. I appreciate it. And uh, she was here so recently. It's like she never left. Uh, Returning from our episodes uh, like Clueless and Kiki's Delivery Service and our 100th episode table read of a Goofy Movie, uh, Charlie Macken is also in the guest seat. Hello, Charlie.
4: Hi, I'm Charlie. You can find me at CharlieMander13 on Twitter, and I am a homosexual.
2: <laughs> Somebody had to. Uh, this is where we would usually toss to Aaron for the patented Aaron Grossman summary, uh, but he is out at yet another wedding. That guy, I guess, just cannot keep away well, from the institution we, matrimony. We told
0: him what we were doing, and he said, oh, I don't like queer films, right? I yeah, think that's he, what he, he said. He explicitly that, said that he's not on board with that I think he's he's said, I hate with gay that, people, and with particularly that lifestyle. movies about gay people. I'm going to have a hard time deciding
2: whether or not to clip this bit. That was really mean. But I'm happy to report that I've acquired exclusive rights to reproduce the patented Aaron Grossman summary uh, one time only for this very special episode at a very reasonable rate, I might mention. Uh, So thank you again to Grossman Licensing Inc. for this opportunity. Um, And here goes. Uh, we're gonna be talking about But I'm a Cheerleader, 1999, excuse me, nineteen ninety-nine queer satirical comedy drama directed by Jamie Babbitt and written by both Jamie Babbitt and Brian Wayne Peterson, it stars Natasha Leone, uh, Cleo Duvall, Kathy Moriarty, Melanie Linsky, Bud Corton, and RuPaul Charles, among others. Uh, quick plot summary is that uh, Megan played by uh, Natasha Leon, is a picture of traditional American values. She's a cheerleader. She has a you know, going steady boyfriend except for her interest in girls. She is, learns that she uh, that not every girl thinks the way that she thinks about other girls uh, when her family stages an intervention to send her to True Directions, a gay conversion therapy camp. Things go awry, of course, as they do when the impressionable Megan, learning about herself but not completely convinced that her desires are wrong, meets Graham, played by Clea Duvall, and unrepentant lesbian rebelling against Cap administration, including its bigoted headmistress Mary, played by Kathy Moriarty. Uh, supported by a group, excuse me, group of residents and ex-residents, Megan and Graham survive the day-to-day life in the camp, uh, subvert Mary's five-step program to become straight and find love along the way. The story of this movie was inspired by elements of Babbitt's own life, including her own experiences as a lesbian and, uh, the halfway house that her mom ran for alcoholics and drug addicts. Uh, screenwriter Brian Wayne Peterson said in an interview with Out Magazine in 2000 that he wanted to rankle right-wingers, uh, with this movie, but also that he wanted to quote-unquote get gay people angry too. I'm a cheer. Excuse me, but I'm a cheerleader. Was critically panned at its release, but has gone on to excuse me garner a true cult following, especially among queer communities and repertory cinema. So, what I'm trying to say here is that, but I'm a cheerleader. 4K Criterion release when. Uh, this showing in particular, at the trial was sponsored by lavender magazine, a biweekly, uh, free, excuse me, biweekly magazine here in Minneapolis for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so with that out of the way, uh, let's start with Emily for her thoughts before you saw this movie, just in quick discussion, you said that it could be kind of scary for queer kids. Um, how did it go down this time? And, and what did you think of this showing?
3: Yeah, so this was my third time seeing this movie. Um, I first saw it with some queer friends while we were smoking jazz cigarettes um, and were all quite terrified by the watch. Um, so seeing it then, seeing it one other time with friends, and then seeing it now at a theater where a lot of other queer people were in attendance um, was quite a different experience than the first watch uh, in a really good way. Too, I think I um, have a better sense of what this movie accomplishes really well now and appreciated it a lot. I think it's um, like a hallmark classic queer cinema, um, basically, especially if you're a queer woman, it's especially important, um, I feel. And yeah, I think what it does really well is that it plays into this campy, over-the-top um, type of exaggerating gender expression, and it plays into like all of those um, traditional gender roles and traditional heteronormative roles of what um, straight people are like or are supposed to be like. Um, and it subverts all of that by doing so. Um, and it, not only that, it like shows you that there is no one right way to be a queer person. There's no one right way to be any kind of person, really. Um, like your gender expression and all of that is up to you as an individual and uh, the roles that society tells you Uh, have no say in in that um, as far as your individual expression goes and um, it so it does the thing too where it's trying to um, knock the queerness out of all of these queer people they're at a queer conversion therapy camp which is terrifying in and of itself as that is a thing in the real world obviously Um, but it's in doing so and trying to like take the queerness out of all of these queer youngsters, it brings them together and helps them find other queer people and see like, oh my God, I'm not alone in this. There's other queer people around me. I have a future. I I might be falling for these other people. I might have relationships, friendships with them. So in doing so, by putting them at this conversion therapy camp, it brings them together in a beautiful way and just plays into the absurdity of all of those traditional um, roles that society places on us that are just so restricting for everyone, regardless of who you are. So I think it does all of that uh, to great success is a fun watch. um, If maybe you aren't too stoned (laughs) the first time you see it, but yeah. And I only have one major issue with it, which we can talk about later, but that's like their final step before they graduate. I have an issue with that whole scene. But otherwise, um, I think it's an excellent movie and a classic for any queer person to see and really anyone if you're just interested in um, some campy, fun and great, I don't know, a great film.
2: (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, a lot of those talking points are ones that I want to bring up as well. There's so much to talk about in this movie. Uh, But for right now, um, Charlie, your thoughts?
4: Um, Yeah, this is my first time seeing this movie and I was actually kind of surprised it was my first time seeing it because, you know, with how campy it is and like how iconic a lot of the like lines are and how beautiful the movie is, I would have thought that it would have been like this cult movie that I would have seen before, but I hadn't. So I was really excited to see it and it was a great time. Um, Like I said, it was really beautiful. It was like you could take a still from any shot in that movie and like frame it Um, and a lot of really great lines. It was super cool to see the star-studded cast and see everybody so young from the beginning of that movie. And also just cool to watch a movie from 1999, right? Uh, And it's kind of like a piece of queer history that I never knew existed and to see what was like on the forefront back then and see what people were talking about back then. So it was really interesting to kind of get that insight.
2: Man, part of of my thoughts about this movie were that, how much I guess we're still talking about in a lot of ways, a lot of the national and international discourse about a lot of these uh, things that this movie is portraying and sort of lampooning uh, are still, you know, mainstream talking points, which is in ways depressing and in ways, uh, I guess, prescient on the part of the movie. Um, for my thoughts, like the things that stick out to me were, uh, like the aesthetic. Both of you brought up how, like, interesting and in, in ways beautiful this movie is. Um, there's a funny contrast between, like, the very garish costuming and very, like, bright colors and plastic, like, 1950s playset style that the whole gay conversion therapy camp actually has itself. Um, and the sort of natural, very woodsy, uh, you know, untouched land around the actual place so i think the shooting locations are really like ingenious for like the playhouse feel of this movie um it draws immediate comparison to the work of john waters i think uh it's very different in a lot of ways from a john waters movie but in aesthetic alone it i definitely like it'd be hard to claim that it doesn't draw particular inspiration from that
0: well i mean Um, Mink stole who is a longtime collaborator is given a cameo role as natasha Leone's mom in this which is like a pretty clear shout out Exactly, exactly. Um, I like how this movie rides a
2: line between, you know, there's specifically the scene I'm thinking of is um when she is when they're like, all ganging up on her to convince her to get her to admit that she's a homosexual. And the scene is like, you know, a pretty... Oh, like they're forcing her out of the closet essentially so that they can sort of draw out uh, like Emily said, knock out the queerness out of this kid and, and force her to admit like that it's sinful or bad or whatever. But it's, you know, it rides that line between forcing her to accept, Uh, her lesbian desires and you know and then like but without quite making her an iconoclast she has a lifestyle that she's quite accustomed to she enjoys being a cheerleader um presumably she'll she still enjoys elements of her faith despite i'm sure you know elements of it following the movie will be uh quite different she just has like such a parochial upbringing uh in the established in the first few scenes of this movie that um she sort of has two minds about it through the rest of the movie she's like glad she can finally call her desires, this thing that she's been pushing to the back of her mind, Um, she can finally give it a name and give it structure and stuff. But unfortunately that structure comes at the cost of like being within a very bigoted mindset, right? Um, She can't quite get on board with it being a bad or sinful thing, but she can finally admit it to herself and know it. And that scene where she is, uh, you know, she says, I am a homosexual where she just breaks down. She is like it's kind of sad in a lot of ways, but also a little bit funny because she's playing it very much as like a revelation about herself rather than an admittance of guilt of any kind. Uh, That scene really colored the rest of the movie for me, where she's discovering more about herself than she is about how bad uh, people assume, um, excuse me, how bad bad people assume being homosexual or having a queer lifestyle uh, is. She's like, she learns to be that way from observing the genuine goodness of her fellow queer women and, uh, you know, the hatefulness of the straight people in her life. I don't, I don't know if there's like a single empathetic quote unquote, good straight person in this movie, which is a funny subversion of a lot of, uh, you know, tropes that would follow in later queer and like queer baiting cinema. I don't know. I'm, I'm going on a little long about it. Um, I also like it's as far, as far as specific points. I also like how it opens the definition of queer a little bit. I don't, I'm no, um, you know, historian specifically from within the queer community, but like uh, there are still even today, like points in this movie, specifically the character Jan played by Katrina Phillips um, has a very like, uh, you know, masculine quote unquote, butch uh, uh, aesthetic. She presents her femininity in different ways to everybody else at the group. And people just assume that she is gay. And she admits near the end of the movie, actually like in the third act that she's not gay. She just like, has, she just likes these things she's she she likes boys she says she just has different ways of expressing her own identity um and i think that that like in this movie as a sort of left turn for that character pretty radical ultimately also kind of radical i think even in today in discourse of today's you know uh headlines making you know discourse around gender expression and gender identity and you know a spectrum of uh you know expression i think it's sort of a statement against the hegemonic um you know, classification of people by their gender expression, which again, feels like something that was as important to say, excuse me, is as important to say now as it was back then. Um, and unfortunately will still continue to need to be said, but uh, that was something I didn't expect this movie to be. I expected it to be a little bit more hands-off, a little bit more, um I don't know, a little bit more comedic than sometimes it delves into. It gets very heartfelt at times uh, and ultimately ends up, you know, being something more than a straight up uh, you know, just a rom com template from, you know, quote unquote straight cinema to the queer movement. It it ends up being a little bit more than that to me because of those uh, few distinguishing factors. Um I'm not clever enough to come up with a way to toss to Cody, so I will just toss to Cody. Cody, you're being tossed too.
1: Hey, wow. And I caught it like always because you toss so well, even though you might not think you do. Um so Well, I watched Moneyball one time. Really? Uh great pick, IMO. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as this movie goes, this was my my second time seeing it. I first watched it, um, oh boy, a little more than a year ago on the Criterion channel uh, back when it was still on it. And I was as uh, delighted to revisit this as I was to have been sort of surprised by it the first time around. There are... we've talked about it um, a little bit. There are some very obvious reasons to like this movie. It's satirical um, almost like aggressively. So because of how like on the nose and unwavering it can be at times. And uh, as Emily alluded to under the right circumstances, it can almost be like a frightening viewing experience because of that. But it's also very uh, earnest and like open and inviting and like does not shirk away um, from like, uh, I don't like touching on a lot of uh, like crucial things uh, that we don't see talked about a lot in, in films and queer films. And therefore I don't know, everything just felt it was easier to take in um, than than someone might think. And that sort of thing has aged really well um, as we have talked about and probably we'll keep talking about. Um, and this uh, cast uh, has also aged uh, really well for the most part. We'll um, undoubtedly continue to shout out a bunch of the actors throughout our discussion um, as well as during the show's final segment spoilers for that. But, uh, while watching, you know, whenever a new face shows up, it it almost feels like you, like you keep finding the right pieces to the movie's puzzle, sort of. Uh, like from the perspective of, you know, me or, or a reviewer, it it at least seems to me that it, it takes a special kind of commitment to lean into sort of the bit of whatever it is that you're satirizing, and it's obvious that everyone here understood the assignment. You know what I mean? Like it's more than just pulling off one liners. It's you know also the subtle ways in which you sell the mockery of gender conventions or the mockery of like uh, like someone's root, you know, the sort of quote unquote patient zero that sets you down this sinful path. Um, I think all that, like this is a very complicated uh, sort of orchestration to pull off. Um, but everyone on screen just makes it look, you know, really easy. And most, if not all of them are also great physical performers. Like there are a lot of physically funny uh, moments in this movie. And all of that adds to the the sort of vibrance of the experience. Um, I guess a few quick miscellaneous things, we saw this at the trial on with a pretty full theater, this was the second show because the first show sold out, um, as you maybe expect or would expect. I, I liked, I really liked rather the collective energy of the crowd. It was, and it was a nice, happy medium. Like there was lots of like laughter and enthusiasm and, and sort of like that, like sort of assumed conversation between audience and, and motion picture, which was really cool, but it was, there was nothing like disruptive about it. You could hear every line being spoken. Um, so that was uh, really awesome. And um, on the note of uh, physical media, uh, I know Jason joked about uh, a 4K Criterion release, but um, so when I I first saw But I'm a Cheerleader, uh, I think it was about two summers ago at this point, it did not have a physical release beyond DVD. uh, But back in June, a Blu-ray for this movie was released, and I believe um, an ultra high-def version is available digitally as well. Uh, I do have the Blu-ray. I haven't cracked it open yet, but uh, I like this movie a whole bunch and I'm certain that I will be, uh, you know, circling back to it, uh, at some point eventually. Um, so that will be a well-used Blu-ray in the near future. Never you worry. Um, but yeah, with, with I guess with all that being said, <clears throat> one, two, three, four, Harry's takes a wait next door. Five, six, seven, eight. I am sure
0: that they'll be great. Take it away, Harry. Maybe the best part about being on this podcast is that I always go after Cody and so he always gets to toss to me and he being the athlete of course is the greatest at tossing but not being an athlete I'm catching this football uh, much the way that the the kids when they were attempting to be straight were catching the football which is to say not well but hello uh, it is I um, I like this movie a lot as well. Um, it's a really fascinating movie in the sense of where it belongs in the sort of um, queer film history canon, right? Like, I I think that it's it's a really interesting example of sort of like, um, it's like a quasi assimilationist movie in a lot of ways, because I, I think that one of the things that it's doing is it's, it's not, I wouldn't call it watering down John Waters, because that sounds overly pejorative, but it, it is certainly sort of applying his sensibility and aesthetic to a more conventional uh, rom-com narrative structure, right? Um, And I think that that's really interesting, particularly because that sounds a little bit insidious, right? Like I I think that there's a case to be made that like you know, if if you're a queer theorist, and obviously as a straight person, I'm I'm not, but um, as somebody who pays attention to that uh, assimilation of queerness in media, is a double edged sword, right? Because it it tends to water down or sand down a lot of the um more radical political aspects of queer theory. Um, this movie does a really really good job of circumventing that uh, via some of the means that I think Jason talked about, uh, particularly the ways that. The target here and the, the satirization target, as Emily pointed out, um, is heteronormativity itself, right? I think that the great central satire irony of this movie is that they uh, go to this conversion camp because apparently their lifestyles are wrong uh, or silly or affected. And what we end up finding out is that straightness itself and heteronormative, excuse me, heteronormativity is the perversion of, Quote unquote nature, right? Like it is the thing that is ridiculous and that is such an obvious uh, square peg for a round hole. is, is the idea that we have these uh, heteronormative restrictive gender roles and identity roles in the first place, and then you sort of see um, how much more natural it is when these characters are allowed to be themselves, how they feel so much more like real people um, and I think that that the particularly the central metaphor about but i 'm a cheerleader is is maybe the film 's best sort of evoca- evocation of um the way that it it can sort of like i don't want to say again launder but but make Queerness more palatable to a mainstreamish audience uh, because they they demonstrate that Natasha Leon's character, um, she is not not a cheerleader, right? Like she is legitimately a cheerleader, she legitimately loves cheering. It's just that it means this other thing to her and it makes her feel this way, and that is as valid an aspect of her personality as her queerness is. Those two things are inseparable from one another and they're intractable from who she is. And I think that the the movie makes space for that, right? And in in large part the narrative is about carving out space for both of those things to exist without erasing each other and i think that that erasure is kind of where assimilation under queerness becomes a problem and so i think that this movie does a really good job of sort of like avoiding that and in the process it creates a really nuanced and really um surprisingly delightful uh queer message right and that that message being that actually heteronormativity is what is ridiculous and what is affected and what is unnatural itself, whether or not you're queer, the idea that your gender identity or your sexual identity needs to mean these things about you, about who you are and what you like and what you do is the ridiculous thing. And attempting to fit people into that will never work. And I think that the movie does a pretty good job of portraying that. And that's a very important queer message, right? Um, So, it, I think that this movie is really successful. I'm surprised that it was so unfavorably received when it came out. I have to imagine that it was just, um, people weren't used to the John rodgersization of media. They were maybe not prepared for something this camp, maybe not s- quite so prepared for something this queer, but, um, I would say that it's received a critical reappraisal now. And I think it's very deserving of that because it, I think it's really, I think it's great, right? I think it's a really good movie basically is what i'm saying and now i'm passing to jason again jason go long oh oh oh
2: I've, i fucking missed it i can't i can't catch football to save my life there was good representation uh straight or queer in that scene of just not being able to play sports uh that is exactly what it looks like when i get behind any sort of sports equipment um but uh i really want to capitalize on that because the overall feeling i have about this movie is like and maybe the John Waters comparison is, is a little too on the nose, um, because Harry ended up bringing it up a lot. But I feel like I feel like in a more transgressive movie, there there would have been a, like I, I don't know the John Waters version of this movie might have been um, m- way more violent, obviously, way more off putting. Like you said, there was there's a certain like amount of mainstreaming. It it wants you on its level in this movie, whether you're queer or straight. It wants you to be able to. Uh, like the screen, screenwriter said, like, he wants to rankle you. He wants to make you angry, but he also, uh, he wants both ends of the spectrum, I guess, pro and anti uh, LGBTQ cause wants everybody to be generally, you know, upset and angry and, and happy and able to. Parse it, right? Um, yeah, where- it's
0: interesting, right? I like, sorry to interrupt. It, it's sort of like, I, I would say that the big distinction is that in John Waters movies, John Waters does not want you to relate to the queer characters, right? He wants to horrify a straight audience and he wants to make the point that queerness is not actually something that is able to be sort of like assimilated safely or easily into conventional society. It is a direct threat to heteronormativity and to sort of like scare quotes um respectable society all told. And then we get the opposite end of the spectrum in movies like Books Book Uh Smart, right? Where like queerness is supposed to be something that is that is entirely uh able to be safely, easily assimilated to the point where there is no real meaningful difference between queer people and straight people except who they happen to be attracted to. And I think this movie kind of uh it, it's in the middle of that spectrum, right?
2: A little bit. Definitely. And I think that is where I wanted to get the opinion of our guests, if I can, if I can toss. Um, Emily, do you feel like this movie should have been like angrier or more uh, over the top, like, I guess, negative about any of its subject matter or any of the you know villains that it cast? Or was it the right balance of positivity and punching up for, you know, for, to make for a good movie that still communicates a good message and moral?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think they did a fantastic job with, um, towing the line there. Like, uh, the, the way they play into the over the top exaggerations, um, I think are great and are over the top for, you know, clear reasons. Like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, it's, you're not like, I think it's at least obvious maybe because I've watched it now three times, um. So maybe less so for a first time watcher, but viewer, whatever. But um, yeah, no, I think they do a great job with the over the top, everything. And I think at, at least as you as it gets going to, you are aware of that. That that's what they're doing. That they're like playing into that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's another version of this movie that gets like where somebody kills somebody else, or you know, blows up the schoolhouse, or whatever. You know, just like an even more out of hand version of this plot. But um. Charlie, did you think that there was a good measure there of of both sides of the, uh, I won't say both, both arguments, but both like approaches to queer cinema where one is obviously very transgressive, very um, uh, not meant to be like palatable to uh, both audiences. And one is more, I guess, easily grokked.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I think it. Definitely probably played on the safe side, but then again, I have to kind of say it it came out in 1999 and maybe my view is, you know, it's like I I wasn't around to watch movies then, but like, I mean, like I was alive, but you know what I mean? (laughs) So it's like, I don't know how safe it was at the time from my perspective. It seems like it's like, oh, everybody can choose what they want to do. And, you know, it's like, like the people next door, like we want to give you a balanced like a viewpoint of whether or not you want to continue this conversion therapy or not versus, you know, like burning the school down so that more kids won't be brought to the conversion therapy place, mm-hmm. you know, but um I don't know. It's it seems like it was a little bit safe. Um, But I think part of that's probably just because of the year it was, you know, and how much they could actually get done in one movie, like homosexual is just a word that they use for literally anything that's not exactly like that 1950s housewife, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, how much can you actually get to I think they really did do a good job of like, saying what they wanted to say and stopping there rather than trying to say everything and failing, you know? <laughs>
0: Um, And I would just add that they are... It, to their credit, like very, very clear that, that the whole like counter conversion therapy is not saying like, well, we want we want to give you the choice to be gay or straight. What they what they say and like what the with very little editorialization the script says is that you are gay, period. Right. It's about whether or not you want to present as gay or you want to continue to basically hide who you are. So like at no point does this movie say you can choose to be gay or not. Right, no. In but- fact, that's the the central joke of the movie is that in the conversion therapy, they're trying to get these kids to act straight and it's such a silly fit because they can't help but be who they are, which are gay people.
4: Right, but it's it's like they're it's like you're choosing whether to stay within this society or leave it rather than choosing if you want to blow up that society and be an act for changing it. you know it's mm-hmm. like, oh, do you want to continue to be a part of this or do you want to leave? rather than like are you going to try to change what's already here
0: you, you know? would you would like this movie to be a little bit more critical of heteronormativity itself
4: um maybe but I mean, it already is. Like I said, I think it's just the year or like what they were going
0: for. Sure, I could <laughs> see that. It's it's a little bit of like the bird cage problem where like the the people in, the straight people in the bird cage are like so terrible and evil that like you really want to see them get their comeuppance, but they just don't. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of like this too, right? Where like Cleo Duval's father, her, that character is like the worst and he doesn't really ever receive any sort of comeuppance. But I guess that's just the way it is.
4: Yeah, and I mean, it's not about them. You know, I actually kind of liked the end of the movie where it's like uh she comes she runs in the truck they kiss and they drive away it's like i feel like if this movie had come out this year we would have had to have like shocked reaction shots to everyone in the audience and then like five minutes after the truck we're like they're setting up their life together yeah it's like i'm just so happy it stopped where it did and we didn't it's like the focus is on them it's not about their shocked families or the like straight conversion team being like oh my god i can't believe they left like we don't care about them anymore you know (laughs) so it's nice
1: Yeah, I, I really like the direction that went, um, because I, I guess the first thing I thought of, like, when, when we're thinking about, okay, like, how, how does, how does this movie's approach differ? And like, how is it the same as like, you know, what, like, John Waters might do? Um, and like, you think about, or rather, I, I got thinking about, okay, so like, John Waters, you know, in relation to like, the opposition, like the opposing force, people, what have you, like, he would have, you know, have our heroes or anti-heroes or whatever, he would blow them out of the water. Like he would take a very like violent approach to it. And like Mm -hmm. thinking about this movie, it, you know, it, it treats its, um, its characters and it's, it's subject matter so lovingly, but at the same time, it, it, there's like an acceptance that some people like will never understand queerness. They will never understand. Like they will always sort of like have tunnel vision, um, when it comes to like traditional gender roles. And it, like, it almost, like disguises that fact. Like it, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's, it's hateful, um, but, but it does sort of disguise the fact that I mean, like it, you know, Kathy Moriarty's character, the parents of these children, um, and I, it, like, kind of relating to, like, if we had, um, you know, we, we talked just mentioned the like the ending of this movie and like if we were allowed another couple minutes like a different movie would maybe have like oh like some whether it's um mary brown or like uh megan's parents or like some parents of the uh or parents of some of the other kids at that at that camp just like you know these like looks on their faces and like it dawns on them and it's like oh wow maybe like maybe there's something to this this movie doesn't do that because i feel like on some level like on like it's a conscious choice right to not like have that happen like there's Uh, like there's an an acceptance that uh, rather I I should frame it differently. It doesn't necessarily aim to bring the two sides together. Um, And I I think that's ultimately just saying um, what some of you have already um, uh, expanded upon, but just like it's, this isn't like we're going to bring everybody together to understand it's some like, (laughs) like some people are in the birdcage. Some of them are not. And like those who, are not like bound by those confines have a choice between them. And like the Megan and Graham chose to to drive away uh, together. And that was a a great choice. I think I'm, I'm glad it ended that way, but it's, I don't know a lot of different ways this movie could have gone. And um, it settled upon this one, which I, I don't know, I think was good. I don't know what I'm trying to say anymore. So I will toss it again. Here we go,
0: <laughs> thanks, Cody. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it 's really important and good that it essentially, despite the the movie kind of setting up for this idea that maybe it wouldn 't this ends on a note of queer separatism, basically, right like there like you said, there is no reconciliation between the worlds of heteronormativity and the worlds of queerness. The two characters leave to like go become a part of the queer community at the end and the The message is not that um natasha leone 's character um Megan can like keep part of her straightness inside of her. It's that her cheerleaderness as a part of her is not rendered, uh, invalid because it is an Mm -hmm. element of her previous life. It is just something that is also a part of her that she can retain as a queer person. Right. And like that's sort of, there's something really interesting there about the way that this movie is interested in, um, queer assimilation. Right. Because that's sort of the, the sticky point of, um Queer theory is this idea that like um there is sort of a john waters and i, I don 't mean to speak for queer theory because i 'm not an expert, obviously, but like there is the sort of like uh, separatism mindset that says like queerness as a culture, as a community is entirely separate from heteronormativity. There is no way that you could reconcile those two things because in fact, the, the culture of straightness, the culture of, of heteronormativity is built on gender dynamics and power dynamics that make it intractable, right? Like you can't, there is no queerness under capitalism basically. Right. Um, and that is, Uh, a really great point, but it it can also, it tends to alienate or isolate, especially young queer people, right? Especially people who grew up in that culture and in that, they they, they sort of like see queerness as something scary because it's something that they're totally unfamiliar with. And that's kind of Megan's arc in this, right? Is that she doesn't want to be queer because queer is all of this scary thing where like, she can't still be a cheerleader if she's queer and she can't still have her friendships and her family. If she's queer, she has to give all that up. And like the movie isn't saying that like, well, queerness can enter back into society, but it, but it is saying that you don't have to give up who you are to be queer, right? It can just be a part of you like, like everything else because it is. And I I think that like, I don't know if I'm doing a really great job of characterizing the distinction there, but I think it is a distinction that is really important, at least to me, because like, it's not saying that there is nothing different about you because you're queer and you can just go back about your life. It's like, it's not that, uh, utopian about it, but it is saying that like, you are still who you are, I guess.
2: Definitely. I, I think you're scratching at a thing that I brought up in our intro, which, um, is like how obviously there's like a spectrum of characters here ranging from the, like, uh, I think Melanie Linsky's character is implicitly like one of the most on board with the treatment, uh, or at least like has been tricked or forced, coerced into into being on board with the treatment and sort of like she has pride in her path toward heterosexuality or whatever, um, to somebody like Graham who is like actively rebelling and trying to subvert the control of of the headmistress and all that. Um but I think that is like positioning Megan between those two uh, where she still has, like you said, her, you know, her cheerleaderness is not a straight thing that she has to reconcile uh, with as, as a queer person. Now it's something that she can bring with her. It's something that like, because it's her, because like it is an aspect of her character because it is part of her. She then gets to describe her sexuality herself uh, in terms of like these things that have, been drilled into her as heteronormative things, you know, being a cheerleader and, uh, eating, you know, having a good relationship with your parents and, um, like, uh, you know, um, and her faith, like I said at the, at the top. Um, but I think that like, I think a consideration of Megan's character is like a good springboard from which to understand or start talking about, um, her relationship to Graham, because there's, uh, a certain, like, like, they're good puzzle pieces, I, I find. Um, you know, like the character development between them happens with Graham, you know, is not as burdened with the question of who she is, uh, as, as Megan is. And Megan is, you know, has maybe more of a capacity to, or at least an externalized capacity to love and express her feelings than, uh, Graham does. Um, Emily, what did you think of that? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I don't know if I'm speaking directly to what you're saying, but just what I'm what it's making me think about is in general the movie's take on shame and placing heaping helpings of shame on all of the queer people. Um in such a way that Megan's character is uh she starts to buy into it a little bit, right? She's like she has the in, um where they are the family pulls her aside and her boyfriend and everyone pulls her aside to get her to admit that she's gay. Um and so she starts to have the admit the admittance of like, yes, I'm homosexual uh, in a shameful way. And so that helps her buy into, okay, so I guess my parents are right. I need to change this because they're telling me I should be ashamed of my queerness. Um, but then forming the relationship with Graham and seeing the other queer people there, forming bonds with them, getting to know them better, getting to see other people and um, what she could be like if she embraced who she is and her queerness, instead of letting society's, uh all the people around her place that shame on her for who she is, she starts to see, oh, okay, there is like another option for me. Um, which is why the conclusion of her getting Graham to run away from the camp is so, um, so fantastic. And so triumphant. Um, because Megan, like you're saying, she is stuck between the characters of, Um, Melanie Linsky and Graham uh, as far as rebel versus uh, let me try my hardest to be the best you know straightest queer person I can be Um, so Megan makes sense as far as our central character to play into both sides and see that ultimately um, fuck putting or fuck accepting everyone else's shame for who she is that has no place uh, in anyone's world or identity, and she can embrace who she is and then run away and uh, fall in love and everything with Graham, which is beautiful. Well said.
4: Yeah, um, I actually really liked Megan and Graham's relationship because it didn't feel like we're falling in love because oh this is my first time that I'm ever considering a woman or because we're stuck together in this like camp it like actually felt like they really liked each other for who they were um, and not just because they happened to be together there I mean I did have to think it was really funny when like Graham first came on str- screen and I like kind of had to laugh because it's like this stereotypical dream boat of like the slightly masked short hair all the finger rings you know like all the
0: stereotypes like Cleo Duval specifically is that for like an entire generation of lesbians. Yeah. Oh really. Like that specific actress is. Yeah. Because
4: I I like saw that and I was like, oh this is hilarious. Like this is the I, I probably know the stereotype from this, to be honest, <laughs> and just didn't know. But um yeah, I really loved how like they actually did fall in love with each other and it didn't seem like it was due to circumstance or anything else. And there's even that really touching moment where, you know, Graham had been making fun of Megan for being a cheerleader from the beginning and then you find out that, oh, actually she really likes that Megan loves being a cheerleader. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like she loves every part of Megan not just the parts that she wants out of Megan which is what everybody else in Megan's life had like they loved that she was a cheerleader but not that she was gay and it's like Graham loves all of her which is so sweet to get to see on screen
0: yeah I think that um the way that Emily like codified that as shame is really good, right? Because I think that um, Cleo Duval's character, Graham is the, the character who doesn't have shame about the fact that she's gay. And that's a really important thing for Megan to see. Um, but like you said, I think that that the tension between them comes from the fact that Graham throughout the movie is trying to get Megan to accept that she's gay. But in, in Graham's mind, she thinks that that means letting go of the other parts of herself that Megan is that those are equally affected. And I think Graham's character arc in this movie is coming to see that Megan's personality is not affected just because she was in the closet. She really is quote as sweet as fucking pie unquote. And Graham comes to believe or like, comes to actually love that about her. Like you said. And like, I think that the cheerleading is a really poignant symbol of that because it is such an Americana symbol, right? Um, I think that's a really well, well staged point. Definitely. And, um, I I guess thinking about
1: Megan and Graham's relationship, there's a scene in, uh, or, or I guess one scene I should say that hit me like differently and even better, um, this time around, um, my voice did a weird thing. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, this movie is making me feel a lot of things. Um, even just in this conversation, which has been awesome, by the way. Um, the the scene sort of before like shit really hits the fan, where um, Megan and, and Graham ha- like it's a, like it's sort of an intimate sequence with them, um, like under uh, like a, a blanket, and we're sort of shielded away from the like the bright blocky color bubblegum slash seventies pop world that we've inhabited for so long and it's just like seeing having that scene with with those two like uh, reaching that point and and, uh, as it's been said like it does feel like genuine real love not just like narrative convenience or anything like that like this movie is doing a lot to like make us believe that and like including the scene and, and placing it where it was placed like seeing that you know, Megan and Graham can have this, this sort of, uh, like this, this love is possible. This experience is possible. And then like the, the movie shifts to not necessarily becoming like, will that be the, like the climactic moment of, um, of their respective arcs of like, will we be able to get to this point? It's also like, comforting for us seeing like okay like we we know and they know that this is possible and now it's just like now that we know that like we we can have this how do we also like hold on to the other parts of our ourselves you know our our cheerleading our our whatever you know our, our whatever's like like how do, how do we sort of fill in the gaps to like make this like self-actualization like land like like uh, how can we take everything else with us that that we want like how can we have everything um because like that scene tells us that like they they and we deserve to have uh what we want but it's just then the rest of the movie is like okay well, well how do we get there we know the destination we've seen it happen we've been there and but but like how do we what are what are steps you know b to z basically
3: Step one is get the hell out of the conversion therapy camp.
0: That's, yes. The first couple <laughs> steps, absolutely.
3: Find your freedom and get the fuck out of there.
0: I was just going to uh, talk a bit more about uh, that, what Cody had said, right? About this idea that like, I think especially in the third act of this movie, being who you are is a really important uh like returning point. And um, there is this sort of false dichotomy that sets up, right? That um, once you're, once you're queer, you are being who you are. And I think that this movie sort of, and maybe this is the part that, that he said that the director said that they wanted to make gay people angry too. It's like, this is, that's sort of only the first step, if you will, right? Is that like the, the conversion therapy is right in the sense that admitting you are a homosexual is the first step, but that is not, like the sum total of who you are, right? Like I think that that Graham's character maybe even represents this idea that she is denying other parts of herself, specifically the parts of herself that are um, tender and that can fall in love and that are hurt by her parents' rejection of her, right? She sort of like bottles all that up and puts away and, and puts on this tough girl facade, right? And I think that her relationship with Megan sort of symbolizes her coming to be more... Uh, true to that part of herself and i think that that's that's a really good and again like surprisingly nuanced and um uh beautiful perspective to take right is that this idea that that queerness is not the destination it's just prerequisite, like like Emily said at the beginning, there's no one right way or wrong way to be a queer person. It also just means that like being a queer person is just part of who you are. It does not invalidate any other aspects of you of who you are, but it it doesn't mean that it has to be like everything that you are either right like you are still all of those things, and there are still things about yourself to discover
2: for sure i it brings me back to what Emily said uh, in her thoughts at the top about. This being a place where uh, these queer people are all brought together rather than like in a lot of in a lot of these cases, we got to assume statistically that some of these people would have found, you know, would have struggled for longer periods of time with their sexuality. Not to say that going to the conversion therapy camp was a is a good thing at all or that it should exist or any of that, but like it gave them a forum it like against the like main intent of the people who run it it does it did give them a forum to discover each other to find each other to create community and they did that they pulled it out and i think that is why the relationship between megan and graham uh, is just so like strong and resonant is because like they wouldn't have found that with any like they, they're just i think i said puzzle pieces earlier and it is just that they like Megan, like you were saying, knows how to navigate uh, feelings of love and she knows how to express that. And, uh, you know, but she's not confident in her, que- in her new, newly discovered queer identity. Um, Graham is fully sure that she's a lesbian and yet she hasn't maybe experienced true love yet, or she hasn't like, she doesn't have that amount of experience. She has, she's not good at expressing that way. And together they make this like dyad that's just so fully actualized by uh, emotional depth and, you know, the shared struggle and mutual support. It's just like really good rom com stuff, uh, that just, works on another level when given this queer lens, I think.
3: Yeah. Ideally you as a queer person don't meet the other queer people at a conversion therapy camp, but Hey, (laughs) if that's, if that's the way it's got to go, um, and that's the only way you can meet your fellow queer fam, then, uh, that so be it, I guess. But yeah, yeah.
4: wasn't there a literal line where they were like, Oh good. We got her before college because that's where they all meet.
3: I wanted to uh, speak to something Charlie was talking about earlier um, about, because we haven't talked much about these characters, but Larry and Lloyd, the ex-gays who try to provide the balanced perspective of um, that these queer people can be queer openly and that's okay and they need to learn that there's another option than just um, assimilating into a straight role. Uh, But Charlie, you saying that, that wasn't like as um, what's the word I'm looking for that instead of them just like burning down the camp, they just kind of show this sneaky sneaky way of like, Hey, uh, we're over here and we have a house and we can show you like the queer bar. And um, we're a queer couple and we, you know, we made it out okay out of this camp and we still have um, our queer identity intact and individuality intact and everything. So I think that's a great, um, I don't know. I just really like that that thought of like if this was really revolutionary, they would have just burned the camp down to the ground and like gotten just, all the kids out saying, of there.
4: Yeah, I'm just saying personally, I probably would have burned it down if I were. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and but like that that is legitimately like the the difference between sort of like queer assimilationism and like that for lack of a better term which i just don't know queer militantism is that and like where this movie falls is never that like there is sort of like this, this thing that like, oh, the, the thing that's wrong is trying to make gay people straight. It's not straight people. Straight people themselves that are legitimately straight are perfectly legitimate. And I think that that's what I'm frustrated with in this movie, if anything, right? Is that I, I think I, I agree more with John Waters when he says like, no, like the perverts are straight people. Like being a straight person is a gross, weird thing that is not natural. And actually, like, in in fact, au contraire, like, you had it completely backwards that, like, queerness is actually what is normal and right about being a person. And this weird system that we set up with heteronormativity is, is what's killing all of us, right? Uh, it never quite gets there, uh, but I think that, like I said, I think that that's certainly something that is understandable given the context of this movie and given who this movie is supposed to be talking to, which is, in my opinion, like, Pretty new queer people, right? Like people who are coming to age of age themselves, and I think that making it palatable in that way and making it something that they can find their way into is really beautiful.
2: Yeah, I think that's uh, to Charlie and Emily's point both. Uh, I think that's what makes the characters of the X X gays. Um, so important to this plot is, you know, they're the, like, they're one of the last pieces that falls into place, right? There's a, there's a sort of convoluted love triangle that only threatens the plot a little bit. But I think the more important part are these two characters whose so unfortunately names I'm already forgetting, but the XX gays who escaped the, um, gay conversion camp and sort of set up a base outside of it somewhere between there and the city to, um, sort of shepherd these kids away and sort of introduce. It's just like, it's a funny concept. And like, I think, like Emily's saying uh, important and emotionally moving that these characters exist to basically like you know in an ideal world where people would have a place that they could go as soon as they start having feelings that they're not sure, you know, about their sexuality, and have a safe space to express that, and you know, good people to support them and stuff. Instead, they're given this, like Megan, as a case study, is given a place that wants to attack her for it and wants to, uh, you know, excise it from her. Um, but in the case of these two uh, gay men who live just outside, and you know, a, a sort of um, in, in a home not far from the uh, from True Directions, they are. The, they're the people introducing these young people who are just barely grasping their sexuality like they are showing them the world outside of the negative view of of homosexuality right they're showing them that you know you can be in a happy domestic partnership with uh with another with another person of the same sex you can have little spats with them and have like a, a an emotionally whole and um Uh, and and satisfying experience with another person that doesn't have to be combative doesn't have to be trying to pull something out of the other person that doesn't have to be trying to change anything about that person Uh, and it's just like i think that i didn't see the inclusion of those characters or even those like the creation of those characters as long-running characters as like Central to the plot. I thought they were just going to be the quick, you know, one night outing where Megan and, uh, and Graham finally get to hook up because they got out of true directions. I didn't see those characters becoming bigger to the plot than they ended up, than they were in that first scene. But, uh, I guess that's just speaking to them in particular as, as an element, of the, an element, excuse me, element of the plot than anything super long and overarching. Um, that was my last discussion point. Uh, I don't want to cut off anybody else if, if there are more things to talk about we are coming up on just about an hour so um i'll open the floor to our guests and recurring hosts is there anything else that we should uh there should touch on that we haven't yet
3: i wanted to make a note of the one scene that i just wish wasn't in the movie um the oh yeah yeah the the last step before they graduate, they have to do this the simulating heterosexual intercourse um, step of the program, which is so rape, culture-y, gross, gross, gross. It's so bad. Um, I just wish mm-hmm. they had done away with it entirely. And I wonder if that is why you said the director wanted to also upset queer people, because it's mm-hmm. certainly very upsetting of a scene yeah. to see queer people forced into um, – having to be intimate with each other in a way that's obviously um, like, it's going to be tra- traumatizing for them. Um, and yeah, I just wish they had done away with that entire step of the program or maybe at least mm-hmm. changed it. So it was like, you guys have to each hug or you have to give a kiss on the cheek or something, something that was, you know, much less extreme than um, how rapey it became in the movie. <laughs>
4: Yeah, I I do think that, like, part of the reason why this was included is because this is the logical endpoint of heteronormative culture, right? It's, like, forcing people, queer or not, into these situations where they don't want to do this, they're uncomfortable, it doesn't speak to, like, who they are, it's, like... This happens to straight people as well because they are also being forced by society into these roles, whether they're comfortable or not. Like that's part of what rape culture is, right? Is it's like, this is who you gotta be and this is what you have to do and this is your husband and you have to do this with your husband, right? It's like, this is kind of like the culmination of like this 50s housewife training and this sports training that they were giving to the boys and girls is it's like, and this is what you do with that culture, right? Like whether you like it or not, this is the end point of that culture, which is really
0: disgusting. But like, that's kind of the point, right? That's a really interesting point. Yeah. And and I also wonder if like, and I don't, unfortunately, to Emily's point, like, I don't think that this scene uh, really pulls off what it's doing because it's not horrifying enough. Like it seems like it's supposed to be funny in the context of the movie when it is in fact like pretty off putting, like you said, Emily Um, go. ahead. Yeah.
4: I do think that like this entire scene was like played for laughs when it's actually very gross. Um, And I mean, I think they were probably just didn't want to go for that tone, but like, if you don't want to point out how gross it is, then maybe like Emily is saying, don't do it in the first place, you know?
0: <laughs> it's, I think it's it's maybe the one place where like this movie that works surprisingly well, uh, where the the genre kind of comes up against the message a little bit, because it's like, it is a funny movie about conversion camps and conversion camps are horrific, inhuman, terrible establishments, right? And like, it's, it's surprising it's surprising how successfully they pull off making something funny about something that is so horrific. Right. And then, but then like this scene does happen and like, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and be like, well, they actually had to show like how terrible these establishments are. They didn't though. Right. Like, because right. they, it's too funny to do that.
4: Right. It didn't like, it didn't seem like they were showing it as this horrific thing that these kids, like these literal children have to do. It seemed like they were like, making fun of you know it's it's like what it, it was supposed to be funny yeah well is-
0: and I, like the joke is supposed to be at heteronormativity so their their heart is in the right place right. they're aiming at the right targets it's just like when the subject matter is so severe like emily said it like you kind of question whether or not it's even appropriate to joke about
4: right
2: yeah it was a bit of a gamble i think on the part of the screenwriter and director um wherein i think like i don't know if it sets up that fifth step very well uh you know the preceding five steps are are pretty. I don't know. It's, it's kind of like Mary is a, a bad guy is, is the like, uh, overbearing headmistress in like a Mrs. Trunchbull kind of way, wherein the, you know, you don't really see it leading up to the final step being simulated intercourse, you know? Yeah. Like, well,
0: and like in general, the conversion therapy is portrayed as, as almost comically inept, right? So, so much yeah. so that it's not really insidious because it's so doomed. It's like these are, these people are so incompetent and this is such a stupid bad idea that it, that it's almost funny rather than scary right up until this point and it kind of makes you surprised and taken aback
2: yeah for me i think the fact that it just comes so quickly and that it has uh you know that it even rankles to that to that end to where people can see it and say like i'm not sure that that you've landed what you think you were landing tells me that maybe like not that it was an ill-advised idea like you said harry i think that their heart's in the right place they are trying to punch up at the right people but that the execution there was just like i feel like if this movie got Rev- reviewed in 2021 like we were like we were mentioning earlier if, if this came out today that would be a scene where that would have much discourse around it right is like was this the right way to punch up at the, at the people you're trying to punch up at or was there a, a better uh maybe more i won't say nuanced but maybe a less traumatic way to do that um i also just didn't find the scene super funny and maybe it's just 1999 humor um but you know, combined between like, wow, this is actually pretty fucked up. More than the other, more than the other fucked up stuff in the movie so far. Uh, plus, um, it just like the humor of the scene, like the intended humor of the scene, not landing for me. I think I, I think I fall on that side of the fence where it's like this probably could have been workshopped into us into a workable, like, effective scene as it is. I don't know if it adds much to the movie for me.
0: Yeah, I don't want to like play armchair director, but I really, really thought that Megan was gonna come and do her cheer and save the day before the sexual torture sequence, right? Like that's that's what I really mm. assumed was about to happen. And so I was very taken aback when no, we did actually like portray sexual torture on screen.
2: Yeah, yeah. All right. Um well I opened the floor once. Uh, I'll do it one last time for um Harry, Charlie, Cody. Any final thoughts about the film before we wrap her up?
4: Um, I just think before we leave, we should uh, mention that conversion therapy in minors has only been banned in 20 out of 50 states as of 2021. What the fuck? Um, Minnesota has some laws against it, but not a straight up ban. So wherever you are listening, make sure that you are voting and donating responsibly. Thank you.
3: God damn it. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie, for that horrifying news. Um it's a very real real thing. Uh, I was just going to shout out the fact that Muna, this uh, queer band, has Phoebe Bridgers on a song that's called Sh- Silk Chiffon, and they just put out a music video that's um, very much tied into this movie. They are all dressed up like they're in Bottom machine Cheerleader in a cutesy way. Um, if you need a break from yikes, that f- the fact that Charlie just dropped on us. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: Yeah. What a, what a bombshell. Um, uh, do absolutely, uh, give and vote the, the right way, um, where, wherever you are, uh, whether that's in Minnesota or elsewhere, I don't know how much of a and maybe electoralism
0: isn't enough. And actually what we should be doing is, uh, making blowing, more direct violent up. action against the establishments that are and make,
2: making more dead people. <laughs> um, correct. It, indeed. Uh, so I think, I think that's what I will call, um, the last go i will make sure to link that music video in our notes emily because i still haven't seen it i know the song but i haven't seen it um but that uh concludes our actual discussion we are going to segue into our final Ooh, we just hit one hour in the recording and that will make the perfect time to segue into our final segment of the show uh led by cody but introduced by myself and charlie and harry and emily uh emily do you know the tune to cody's noties would you be able to help us with that
3: I will wing this. <laughs> it is
2: well, the sister, it's sister, sister, thing. sister, sister. But we say Cody's nose. Wait, what? Instead. So, Emily, or sorry, Harry, give me the run in.
0: Yes. Uh, we are transitioning now to the segment, and I'll give us a countdown. It is three, two, one. Cody's, Cody's nose.
1: There you go. Oh,
3: Excellent job. My God.
1: Incredible wow uh thank you everyone so much for that cheerful introduction there are uh, so many talented actors who graced the screen throughout the course of the film we've been talking about today but i'm a cheerleader what i'm hoping to, uh, to do is shout out as many of them as possible in a little segment that i honestly would have just liked to call it try love uh because i think this is an instance where the name of the pod works well for the bit but for the purpose of being finally um, a little...
2: finally we have a good
1: podcast name after two and a half years <laughs> finally uh, yeah uh, uh yeah it only took um 100 plus episodes um but uh, regardless I'll, I'll i'll play um cody's advocate here but for the purposes uh, of being a little bit extra i like to call this segment but i'm a tri lover get it sung to the tune of but i'm a cheerleader yeah uh-huh. <laughs> It's, it's it's something. Um, what I'll do is uh, present... Uh, this will be a trivia game. I'll present each trivia tidbit one at a time. After each statement, I will ask y'all in, let's say, reverse alphabetical by first name order. Um, yeah, that'll work uh, to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end wins. As always, trivia mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. With that... Let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. Um, we'll start, uh, number one here, with someone who uh, didn't get a ton of screen time in this movie, uh, and that's Michelle Williams, uh, who plays Megan's friend, Kimberly. Uh, sort of uh, like in the the pre camp um, situations uh, at at school and things like that. Those scenes, uh, Michelle Williams. For those who don't know, she has since gone on to have uh, a pretty incredible career. She's been in a number of Kelly Reichardt's films. She's been in *Brookback Mountain*, *Manchester by the Sea*, *Venom* 2018. and Venom uh, most importantly, most and a hey, even maybe even more importantly, we will uh, see her re- return to the silver screen in *Venom*. Let there be carnage oh, coming oh. to theaters October first. I think. Um, but in, in any case, uh, I, I ask you all, what is Michelle Williams' Academy Award winning percentage? Or to phrase it maybe better, what percentage of Oscars that uh, Michelle Williams has been nominated for has she won, starting with Jason? What, what's your what's your guess for her winning percentage? Oh, my God. This I, know you lo- I know we all love these me, questions. Excuse me. Yes? You said yes?
0: reverse by alphabetical order? First name. Oh, it's first name. That uh-huh. makes sense because I uh, I have excuse the same me, excuse last me, name. excuse me. Thank you. Go Jason. ahead. To be fair, I wasn't listening very closely. I, can, I can I inquire? <laughs>
2: does, does Harry lose a point for not listening to the rules oh, the first time around? We should enforce I think, that. I think should we, we should we we? enforce that. Um, but for right now, uh, percentage
1: of uh, Academy Award wins. I'm going to say twenty percent. All right, Jason says twenty percent. Uh, now, Harry, this one's. It's your turn now. Uh, What is your guess for this question? Uh,
0: I don't know that she's ever won an Academy Award. I hope she has. She deserves one for certain women, Um, but I'm going to, or maybe for Lucy and, uh, what's the name of that other one? Kelly Ryker? Wendy and Lucy. Wendy and Lucy. She's very good in that. Um, I'm going to say 0%, unfortunately. All right. Uh, Emily, uh, what's your guess for
1: this?
3: I'll go with uh, 42%.
1: To spread yeah.
3: right, right out for, of my uh, ass. <laughs> uh, uh, ju-
1: just to make sure I heard that correctly, was that forty two percent or forty two point zero percent?
3: That'd be forty two point zero, correct? Okay,
1: perfect, perfect. Just wanted to make sure. Um, it, it may matter in the final tally, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for clarifying. Uh, and Charlie, what is your guess?
4: I have no idea, so I'm going to go with thirty three point three.
1: Thirty three point three percent. All right. So Michelle Williams uh, has been nominated for a total of four Oscars. She has won zero of those awards. Her winning percentage is zero percent. It is so fucked up. Uh, yeah, I know dude, awards only-, only. I I, uh, I know awards only like kind of matter depending on the context. But she's. I think to echo Harry's sentiments. Uh, sentiments. She's one of the best actors currently working, she and it's didn't infuriating. Didn't win for
0: Manchester by
1: the Sea. She did not. I forget. Uh, there was like a runaway. Um, like oh. the, somebody who basically like had it locked. I, I can't remember, but like she nominated for that, nominated for Brokeback Mountain, nominated for my week with Marilyn and I'm forgetting the the fourth, but yeah, uh, she deserves, um, a ton of praise, uh, watch Kelly Reichardt's films, um, especially ones with Michelle Williams Yeah, in them. Wow. Uh,
0: Kelly Reichardt's a very yeah. good filmmaker.
1: Yeah. So uh, all, all that being said, a hollow consolation um, for Harry being exactly correct with his guess of zero percent, but he does get the point for question number one. Um, next up here for number two, we've got uh, sort of the star of the show, and that's N- uh, Natasha Leone. She, like Michelle Williams, is extremely talented and has therefore been able to dip her toes into many different types of projects throughout her career in both film and television. Uh, Though a lot of her mainstream appeal still sort of remains in comedy. My question for you all, which of the following comedy film franchises has Natasha Lyonne not been a part of? I'm going to list three here. So we've got American Pie, Scary Movie, and despicable me and again those represent film franchises which film franchise has natasha Leone uh not lent her herself and her abilities to yet uh jason what's your guess damn um of
2: these three series the one that i have most experience with is despicable me uh but i didn't pay attention to who was in those movies so i'm just going to say uh, scary movie
0: all right uh scary movie says jason harry what do you say I'm really mad I had to go second because I, uh, I'm i going to go with um, Despicable Me.
1: All right. Uh, Despicable Me says, Harry, uh, Emily, what are you guessing for this?
3: Yeah, at first I wanted to guess Despicable Me, but now I'm going to put Scary Movie down as my guess because that'd be more surprising,
4: I think, that she was, sure. wouldn't have been in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Perfect. So I got Scary Movie here. And Charlie, what are you thinking?
4: I've never seen any of these movies, so I'm going to go with Despicable Me.
1: (laughs) All right. Excellent. Uh, Braggart. Yeah. (laughs) uh, The correct answer is C, Despicable Me. Um, Ah. I I attempted a curveball because uh, Leon is a talented voice actor on top of everything else, um, but she has not contributed her talents to the Despicable Me uh, conglomerate. Um, I've seen all the like sort of canonical American pie movies. um, And she's, uh, sort of part of that main group of, of characters. Uh, I have not seen the scary, she's in scary movie, I think one and two. Um, I, but I have not seen those, so I cannot speak for that, but she's in them. Um, shout outs, uh, to scary movie franchise. No, uh, Remove that from the record. Um, so in any case, uh, the the Mackins came away with points for number two. Um, Harry's in the lead with two points. Um, we've got three more questions to go. Still very much anybody's game. Um, midway point here with number three. We're going to spend some time with Clea Duvall, who, beyond this movie, uh, audiences probably know her best from... Uh, Girl Interrupted, which I've not seen. I've heard it's great. Um, and a, a recent previous episode of ours, The Faculty. Um, Shout-outs to, to us for talking about that movie. Um, it is very fun. Um, uh, you can remove that self-shout-out from the record, too, if you want. She's far from the only Duvall in Hollywood. However, um, two other notable Duvalls are... Um, we got Robert Duvall, who folks probably know from the Godfather films, and Shelley Duvall, who has been in a few previous episodes of ours. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller... Uh, time bandits um, though she's probably most well known for the shining. Um, and to I, be clear none of, I, I, what, I was gonna what?
2: say I, I was really hoping your question was going to be name two other famous
1: Duvals <sighs> and I was like oh I fucking got this I've got it off the bat but no you never mind yeah uh, number three name a woman. Uh no, uh, to be clear, none of these <laughs> Duvals.
2: Uh,
1: uh, uh... <laughs> uh none of these Duvals are, are related to each other. Um, and that's not what this question is going to be about either. Uh what it will be about is for these three Duvals, um, I have obtained the average Metacritic score for their entire career in film. For those unfamiliar, Metacritic is an aggregator of critical reviews for film, TV, music, and bu- 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 video games. And uh they keep on a Pew, pew, pew. And they keep on a, on a zero to 100 scale with 100 being the best uh, score a work can receive. All This is a lot of lead up. My question for you all, which of these three actors has the highest average Metacritic score for their entire filmography? Um, so listing the choices again, we've got Clea Duvall, Robert Duvall, Shelley Duvall. So which Duvall has the highest average Metacritic score for their filmography? Jason.
2: Uh, not to explain my reasoning too much, but um, I know Shelley Duvall did not act in way too much, uh, or maybe I'm making that up, but I do know that Robert Duvall was in Secondhand Lions starring uh, Haley Joel Osment and um, Michael Caine in 2003, one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid. Uh, and I know that must have brought his Metacritic down. It's, it's not an incredible movie. Um, so I'm going to say Shelley.
1: Uh, before I pivot to the next person, um, Jason, it's amazing that we have not talked about Secondhand Lions because that got for like a couple years that got a lot of runtime in our household. So Hell yeah, I've seen uh, that. I've uh, seen that movie like also 50, a favorite times. of the Mac
0: and- yes. <laughs> what? Let's go! Let's go!
1: All right, uh, Secondhand Lions episode two hundred. Um, we're <laughs> reading the screenplay coming. Uh, <laughs> Coming soon to a podcast platform near you. Um, anyways, so Jason guessed uh, Shelly Duval. Uh, Harry, what's your guess?
0: Robert Duval has to be the trick here, right? You're tricking us. I, Cody, I'm metagaming again. Uh, it was Shelly Duval, Robert Duval, and Clea Duval. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to go with uh, Clea Duval having the highest Metacritic score. Alrighty, uh, Emily, what do you think?
3: I want to go with Clea Duval, so I will Clea Duval.
1: <laughs> Queen. <laughs> awesome. And Charlie, what's your guess?
4: Uh I'm going with Robert because he's a man and they get trended higher on the internet.
1: Hey, you're Rough not but true. There. Rough but true. Uh so alright, quick rundown here. So Cleo Duvall uh is currently running with an average career score of fifty-two. Robert Shit. Duvall has ra- ra- uh, a, a lot of gems in there. A lot of films I really, really like. Um, but she is uh, bringing up the rear in this trio. Robert Duvall has a score of 63. And Shelly Duvall has a career score of 70 fucking 2. Ooh, Shout out to uh, Shelly Duvall, uh, who is absolutely feasting
0: out there. The Ooh.
1: greatest actress ever to live. That's, Look, a, I that's who, what I mean. you
0: exploited my my defensiveness for Shelly Duvall. She doesn't get a lot of uh, flowers in this business, which is not fair. Justice for Shelly Duvall, but apparently more than I thought. So apologies to Shelly Duvall.
1: And shout out as well to all the metagamers that we got out there. Um, we've got uh, a really tight matchup here. Um, everybody is still, uh, of course, very much in it. We've got uh two more questions left jason did pick up the point for that question for question number four uh again our second to last question we're going to talk about dante bosco you may know him as you may know uh, uh, you may know him as dolph from but i'm a cheerleader you may know him as prince zuko from avatar the last airbender you may know him as rufio rufio the leader of the lost boys from 1991's steven spielberg's hook we know him we love him how tall is he jason
2: Oh, my goodness. I'm going to say five foot nine. Just seeing him alongside a lot of other apparently averagely height women. um, I'm going to assume he's five nine.
1: All right. Five nine says Jason.
0: Uh, Harry, what's your guess? Well, Charlie made a gesture of a thumb going down when I when Jason (laughs) said that. And so this is cheating and I'm going to go with five seven. Thank you. Wait. wait. Wow. Hey, man. That's the power of in-person recording. I don't know what to tell you. Uh thanks for the invite. Uh Emily, what's your guess?
3: Five seven and a half. <laughs> half. <laughs> uh, He's
1: prices writing me. Uh and Charlie, what are you what, what are you guessing?
4: I guess I have to go with five six now if we're prices writing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's gonna be Danny DeVito by the time we're done.
4: <laughs> Zero feet. <laughs> Final <laughs>
2: answer.
1: Uh one <laughs> inch. <laughs> uh going off a few sources on the internet, Dante Bosco is reportedly indeed five foot seven. Five oh! foot seven. Uh yeah. Um Charlie's Inside. This is this is uh,
0: redemption for my uh Peter Falk uh conundrum I, your Falk up.
4: Harry was totally gonna go above Jason's answer until he oh, saw I, my reaction.
0: I was gonna get <laughs> six six, Fucking... yeah. Ah, <sighs> A
1: gigantic human being, seven and a half foot tall, Dante Bosco. Um, I would love to see it personally. A great Um, presence
0: in the voice acting
1: uh, arena.
0: (laughs) Center for the Clippers. (laughs)
1: Uh, Boban Marjanovic uh, eat your heart out homie Uh, we've got one final question here similar to what we've done in previous games I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Melanie Linsky who portrayed the character Hillary in But I'm a Cheerleader uh, and was also the voice of Beatrice in Over the Garden Wall, Let's Fucking Go uh two of these uh utterances will be for real, again, allegedly, and one will be fake. Your task is to pick out the fake one. So I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter afterward. Please be advised. Melanie Linsky is from New Zealand, but I will not be donning an accent for this please, exercise. No, Thank please, you. Please, Cody, please. Moving on. That's no. A no, no, no. It is that's Coward. not even close to what a cop-out is. Uh I will read the first quote. So first quote. If I ever have time off and don't know what's coming up next. I get really nervous and think, oh, well, I've had a nice career. So that was the first quote. Second quote, the most beautiful people to me are those who seem at peace within themselves and give of themselves generously. Also, I think eyeliner is magic. That was the second quote. And the third quote, I'm not one of those people who can cry on cue. If I have to cry in an audition, I'm like, okay, let me see what I can do. So which one of those is the fake quote, Jason?
2: I'm going to say the second quote is the fake one.
1: All right. Uh Harry, what do you think? Did you going to give a, a thumbs up or thumbs down that time?
0: No, she she's playing a poker face now. She's learned okay. from her mistakes. I've I regret pointing that out. Uh I'm going to go with uh question number th- or quote number 3 please. Thank you. All right. Uh Emily, what do you think?
3: I can't picture her wearing
4: eyeliner. Um so I'm going to go with the second one.
1: All righty, and Charlie, what's your guess?
4: I'll go with the first one, because nobody else has picked it yet.
1: (laughs) All right, fair enough. Uh, The imposter is indeed the first quote. Uh, The actual alleged quote is as follows. If I ever have time off and don't know what's coming up next, I get really nervous and think, oh, well, it's probably over. So... So you Take didn't really ca-
0: change the hmm. spirit or the character of that quote at all. You just the specific wording that time.
1: Cody's trickies. You, you described verbatim what happened and it, it is well, well, well within the confines of the rules, uh, that I made up. Um, I don't know why you're being so bitter. I should deduct points from that and make it so you don't have the most points. Uh, Harry did come away with the most points uh, three. So I don't know why he's a, a piece of salted pork over there. Uh, but Charlie um, came away with two points. Jason with one, Emily was zero, but um, Hey, it was a fun game all around. We I would have I won.
4: Harry stole that point from me. I would have won. <laughs> yeah. I didn't stand uh, a chance at any of these. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The kids don't stand a chance, do they? Um, regardless, um, thank you all for playing. This has been But I'm a Tri Lover. Thank you. Thank you so much,
2: Cody, for making the endings of our episodes so much more fun every time. And I will adjudicate and say that uh Cody act or excuse me, Harry actually has one point because one was given to him by his uh by our guest and his sister sitting next to him. And two, he started the episode with at negative points in my mind, um, for forgetting the rules and, or willfully uh flagrantly disobeying them. Um so actually you can say uh, anything
0: you want, man. At the end of the day, I'm going so home actually, with that trophy.
2: So actually Harry loses <laughs> so. again. Uh another sad um entry in the Harry fucked up uh canon. But this has been our episode, a wonderful, wonderful episode about but I'm a cheerleader. Uh you can find this movie on all sorts of streaming platforms. Uh, I guess it's not on the Criterion channel anymore. But um unfortunately you have missed the only showing that was scheduled at the trilon uh put on by or sponsored, excuse me, by um Lavender, a by bi- free biweekly uh LGBTQ plus magazine here in uh Minneapolis. You can find their website, um, lavender.com, I think. I'll edit if that's not right. Uh, But for right now, I want to thank again our two guests. Um, Give us your uh, ats and outs, uh, Emily and Charlie.
3: Um, I'm Emily Sui. Thank you for having me back on Try Love. I don't want to be your cheerleader no more. And you can find me talking about Hey Arnold um, with Cody and Harry at Stoop Kids Pod. Thank (laughs) you all.
2: You really came through with that one. I did not see that coming. Uh, Emily. Or, sorry, God, Charlie. There are two guests here. Charlie, Charlie, Charlie.
4: Uh, I've been Charlie Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at CharlieMander13. And uh, thanks for having me.
2: Thank you both for being on. Um, you can find our podcast at TryLove Podcast. You can find the Trylon at Trylon Cinema and Trylon dot Lot of cool ways to support the Trylon. There's the Trylon Club membership. There's merch. Uh, every time that there's a new series, a new poster is released. You can buy one of those water bottles. I bought two of those water bottles and lost or broken both of them. Uh, but hey, you don't have to be as dumb as I am. Um, you can find the Trylon at Trylon Cinema. You can find our podcast at TryLove Podcast. You can find me, Jason Daphnis, at Nintendoofus.
1: Wow, excellent work, Jason. Man, I'm just, uh, always in awe of you and your ability to recite your, uh, just like the outro of the show, as well as your own personal, uh, logistics. Name. It's amazing. Yeah, man. Just the way you say you're at just really, uh, regardless, uh, I'm, I'm fawning over, over everybody here. Um, shout out to harry shout out to our our lovely guests emily and charlie thank you for being here uh if you listen to stoop kids and found this episode as a result of that somehow um what's up thanks for listening uh i've been cody narvis and you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh
0: some people call me harry but you can call me champ that's what they're all gonna call me from now on thank you you can find me at shiitake harry or at shiitake champ i'm considering changing it so keep keep an eye out for that and good night more like shiitake chump
1: what all right uh here comes a clear read uh, clean read for my quote <sighs> okay who wants to go down with me